thanks for checking out this message from Springmount Church. For more information about us and what we do, visit our website, springmount.church. Why not check out all the different groups that run throughout each week in Barrow and on Walney? And join us every Sunday from 11am at Salt House Pavilion in Barrow Infernos. If you would like us as a church to pray for you, please email prayer at springmount.church or sign up on our website for monthly news straight to your inbox. It's amazing. Anyway, it's great to, to be with you. If you're here for the first time, uh, can I just say that uh, I'm not the regular preacher here. I'm a visitor. Uh, and my name is Phil, uh, and I, I'm actually a pastor over in Hartlepool, which is sort of Barrow taken over to the northeast coast. <laughs> Uh, and uh, it's, uh, it is really lovely to be with you, but uh, I am a, a Barovian, I am from here, and uh, I grew up in this church. Uh, and Johnny's asked me to speak this morning on Revelation chapter 5 uh, in this series about amazing grace, and the title that I've chosen really is just to talk about the amazing grace of worship, the amazing grace of worship. And uh, I'm going to read chapter 5, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Could tell I was the preacher by the size of my Bible, but actually that's to do with the size of the print. <laughs> so it just uh, helps me. Revelation 5, verse 1 And I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. And there was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll and unroll it? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. And then I wept, because no one could be found who was worthy to open the scroll and read it. But one of the 24 elders said to me, Stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has conquered. He is worthy to open the scroll and break its seven seals. I looked. And I saw a lamb that had been killed but was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God that are sent out into every part of the earth. He stepped forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp. And they held gold bowls filled with incense, the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song with these words. You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it. For you were killed and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have caused them to become God's kingdom and his priests and they will reign on the earth. And then I looked again and I heard the singing of thousands and millions of angels around the throne and the living beings and the elders and they sang in a mighty chorus, the lamb is worthy, the lamb who was killed is worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and they also sang blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living beings said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped God and the Lamb. Lord, we pray that as we come to look together at this 
your word. We pray that through the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit, you will open our eyes uh, and our ears. Eyes to see, uh, to see you, Lord, to meet with you, and ears to hear what you would say to us. Lord, just speak to your people this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it would be almost exactly 45 years ago that uh, my family, my mum, dad, myself and my two sisters, uh, moved back into this area and we started coming um, to this church, which at that time was meeting in Victoria Hall in Rawlinson Street. Uh, and if I could take you back uh, to that time, you wouldn't recognise the church as the same church. It was a traditional brethren assembly. Uh, we had hard wooden bed benches with, uh, you know, wooden seats, wooden backs, uh, and uh, we sat around the table. We were set out in a sort of, well, not quite a circle, but we were set out either side of the uh, Lord's table. Uh, there was no musical instruments. If we sang, we sang, uh, we sang to uh, just... Uh, a cappella, is that the right word, uh, without music, uh, and we had our little brethren hymn books um, and the prescribed hymns that we were to sing, and uh, all the different brethren, and it was important we get that bit, they were the brethren, the brothers, uh, they could sort of lead the service as they felt led to do, share a song or lead a prayer or share a word, and it was in this kind of uh, atmosphere in this church that I uh, grew up, I was a teenager when I came back here, and um, and the recollection of that might make you think those were the days. Perhaps there are some who are thinking those were the days. Uh, and others might be thinking, well, it's grim up north. Um, and, uh, but in that context, as a teenager, I started to love the church. And I had a sense of God's call on my life, and I began to, de- and I began to take my first public steps in speaking. Uh, and I remember on one occasion during one of these Sunday morning services where the brothers could get up and speak, uh, that I got up and shared a profound thought about Revelation. And this was the profound thought, that Revelation was full of worship. That was it. That was the depth of my insight. But Revelation is full of worship. I don't know if you've noticed that. Revelation is full of worship. And the reason to me it was profound and needed to be shared was because most Almost everything I'd ever heard about Revelation was to do with prophecy and the second coming and interpretations of Revelation that were often were pretty well related to the political climate of the time. So for me to read through the book of Revelation and just see how much worship there is and how core and key it is to the book of Revelation was uh, so significant. And so this morning, what I want us to think about is how worship reorientates us to the amazing grace of God. That's what I want us to think about, how worship, what God wants to do is he wants to reorientate us always to the grace of God. He wants us to come back to the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants us to come back to uh, what the Lord Jesus has done for us on that cross at Calvary and through his resurrection. And I want to to suggest to us that the effect of true worship is to reorder our disordered desires. And uh, and the way we do that is by putting Christ at the centre. So, and my conviction about the book of Revelation is that it is a book that spoke directly into John's situation. And John was the elder of at least the seven churches that are mentioned in Revelation 2 to 3 that many of you will know about. And... uh, that the vision that he has, has a context. 
And the context is that he's the pastor to these seven churches and there are all sorts of issues in these churches. And Jesus appears to him and gives him this vision and it's addressing in the first place directly the issues that uh, he's facing as the pastor of these churches. And then my second conviction is that Revelation is a revelation about the continuing life of the church throughout the ages. So that Revelation continues to speak to us in every age to the church in some way, shape or form. And then obviously and finally that uh, it's also a revelation about the future return of the Lord Jesus Christ and the way that we are to live. But if you notice how this uh, book unfolds, there is a, a way that it unfolds. Worship keeps coming. It keeps popping up in the context of the book. There's always people bowing down and falling down to the Lamb. There are always new songs appearing in Revelation. So given that the starting point is this... So given that as the starting point, it is significant that after the seven letters and the challenges to the churches that are there in Revelation chapter 2 and 3... And if you remember some of them, there were challenges about returning to their first love. You remember how the church in Ephesus was a very successful church. But the Lord Jesus says, you've got to get back to your first love. You've got to come back to loving the Lord Jesus Christ. There were the challenges in some of the churches of persecution and opposition, very real spiritual warfare. You know, one of them is the synagogue of Satan. One of them is the throne where Satan dwells. All of these kind of situations that these churches are facing. And then at the end, there's Laodicea, a comfortable church, which as a result was lukewarm in its faith and its love. And at the end of all of that, the next thing that John sees at the beginning of chapter 4 and into chapter 5 is a door open in heaven. And he has a vision of what one commentator describes as a cosmic vision of the worship of God. So at the end of all of this, all of these detailing of the issues as the Lord Jesus lays bare what the church is facing up to, the response is, worship, let me open up to you. Let me give you a vision of what's going on in heaven. Let me show you a glimpse, and it's only a glimpse, an allusion to the incredible worship that is taking place as as God the Father and God the Son are being worshipped. So He moves to worship, and I would suggest that the reason he does that is because true worship of the true God is the place where God begins to put things right, where God begins to reorientate us to his amazing grace, to what the core things are, the values that he wants us to live through, that worship reorientates us to God. And as I was uh, preparing this sermon this week, I started reading a book by a guy called Andrew Fellows, who I don't know who he is, and it doesn't really tell you who he is. But I saw a review of this book, and it's called Smuggling Jesus Back into the Church. And its subtitle is How the Church Became Worldly and What to Do About It. And as I was reading it, it struck me how much the themes that he was talking about overlapped with the themes that I was thinking about in Revelation chapter 5. How much worship is the thing that ought to reorientate us away from the values of the world and the way that they smuggle themselves into our minds and into our thinking and even into our churches and get us back to being amazed by the grace of God, motivated by our love and our devotion to the living Lord. 
I don't know if you've uh, ever played a spinning game. I can remember um, when I was a nurse in the nursing home at York, we were in the sort of this grassy area and some of our friends, and then don't ask me why we decided to do this on this particular day, we were young. Uh, uh, we decided that what we had to do was we, we needed to spin round holding a broomstick. Uh, and so we had to spin round like 25 times. And then the idea was that you've got to step on the end of the broomstick. Uh, and uh, so we were all doing, there's about seven or eight of us uh, taking turns to do this. I, I don't, have you played spinning games? It might not be this particular one, but you spin yourself and you've got to walk in a straight line on a bench or something or other. Uh, and what happens is uh, that you don't walk in a straight line. You go all over the place that you end up with sort of like all of this kind of thing. You're disorientated. And what I want to propose to us is this, that actually that's what the world, when we go out into the world, the world is spinning us in the direction of its own values. And as a result, we become disorientated with regards to the values of our king and the kingdom that he has brought into being. So every, you know, we spend a, a week in the world and the world is spinning us all the time. There are messages coming to us from the culture, the, from our conversation, through the media, in all sorts of ways that are spinning us. And when we come together to worship in this kind of context, what God wants to do is he wants to reorientate us. He wants to center and focus us on the Lord Jesus Christ and bring us back to reality. So, Andrew Fellows in the book suggests that there are four super values that dominate our world and are particularly challenging for us as Christians because they easily infiltrate into the church. And he says that they are naturalism, that is that, we can, that all that we can see uh, and perceive is the fullness of reality, that you know, what there is is there is. Scientism, really, in some ways. And then there's hedonism, the belief that pleasure is what life is for and the pursuit of pleasure is what we should be about. The third is egoism, which is the idea that we place ourselves at the center of everything. And the fourth thing is politicism, and that is we believe that the political realm is where the world is made right that our politicians will sort it all out. I don't know. We live a long time and they never seem to do it, so I don't know why we keep believing that, but somehow or other we do. And our world promotes these values in all sorts of ways through the media, advertising, films, music, TV, the, the very air that we breathe in our culture. But they're not necessarily consistent with the kingdom of God. There's always some, there's always overlap. There's always truth in these things. But actually, sometimes partial truth is, can be very harmful to us. And it just struck me. As I was reading this and I was studying for this, that Revelation 5 speaks to each of these values and in doing so, it reorientates us to the amazing grace of God. At the beginning of the chapter, John sees a scroll in the hand of him who sat on the throne. Now we've just had in chapter 4 a glorious description of he who sits on the throne. We've had a description of God the Father. And at the beginning of chapter 5, we have this picture of God the Father holding the scroll in, the ha in his hands, sat on the throne. And the scroll is the destiny of the, of the earth. It's, that's what's in it. It's, this is the destiny of, the, of human beings. This is the destiny of the whole of creation. And God is holding it in his hand. And a mighty angel invites anyone who is powerful enough to open the seals in order to put God's purposes into action. And then we read that uh, John wept. 
And it's, you know, he just wept and wept and wept. He just thinks there's no one, there's no one powerful enough to do this. And so from the outset of this chapter, we see that behind the events of the world, there is an invisible reality that is actually more real than the reality that we experience. We're seeing this, that God himself is holding history in his hands. It's his to do as he wishes with. And that behind what we can see and touch, there are indeed spiritual realities. And worship should reorientate us to this reality. It should reorientate us to the God who holds history in his hands. It should reorientate us to the reality that what we see is not all that there is. That God uh, is ruling and reigning, but also that there are other spiritual realities and forces that are at work in our world who are seeking to undermine God and to undermine his purposes. I don't know, I, I mean, I'm more and more convinced of the, of the absolute need for us to open our eyes to the spiritual reality of the spiritual warfare that we live in. I'm in a church where, at the moment, I'm the pastor. We have eight deacons, uh, and we were praying on Monday night, praying for, praying for the church, but also, I was just so aware, as we were sharing, that at least four out of those nine people are in situations where there is real significant crisis within their families. So the leaders of the church are all facing up to things that are really significant issues within their families that drain their energy and... <laughs> Do you think that's spiritual? (laughs) That there's a mastermind behind there coordinating these things, bringing these forces to bear upon the families. So worship should orientate us towards this spiritual reality that when when we go from a place like this, we know that it's not just the world as we see it, but there's forces and powers behind it. But we should be confident that God's got it, got the scroll in his hand. And as the vision continues, at first John despairs. But then he's told, verse 5, that the lion of the tribe of Judah is able to open the scroll. And he turns to look, and he sees not a lion, but a lamb. A lamb looking like it had been slaughtered. I, I love that there's that uh, there's contrast. He's told that it's a, li- a lion, and what he sees is a lamb that is slaughtered. And it's one of the most profound and one of the most powerful images in the whole Bible. And if you want to be amazed by the grace of God, reflect on it. He hears the lion of the tribe of Judah, power, victory. And what he sees is a lamb as if it had been slain. And verse 9 tells us what qualifies this vision of Jesus to open the scroll, to unfold history. It's telling us, I believe, that actually the hinge point of history is Easter, the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I, I call it the second big bang. It's where really the history that we're interested in begins. The moment that Jesus died on that cross and three days later God raised him to life. That's the turning point of all history. And to be honest, you could argue with me forever about evolution and creation and all the rest of it. And I just want to say, well, show me that Jesus isn't alive. Because that's the thing that counts. If God raised Jesus, then everything else in this book is true, isn't it? 
And this is that moment. What qualifies him? Verse 9 tells us that he died. He shed his blood for us. He was the lamb that was slain. You know, the images of the Passover lamb, the blood daubed on the doorstep so that the angel of death would pass over the people of Israel. Isaiah 53, the lamb that, that was that, that led like a lamb to the slaughter. This is what qualifies him. He shed his blood for us that our sins might be forgiven. And then that, that with his blood, he's ransomed a people for God, for every tribe and nation. This is his purpose. Create churches like this, every tribe and nation, to be a witness to the glory of, the, of God. And then the final thing that qualifies him is this people, they, uh, in contrast to the powers of the world, they demonstrate God's kingdom of love and justice. We're, we're God's good news. It's incredible. We're part of his purpose. He's chosen to work through us. And it's amazing and incredible privilege. So in the face of the hedonism that can so easily infect the church, which often takes the form of believing that God's job is to make my life easy and blessed, and when he doesn't, we kind of get disillusioned, we get disillusioned with God because it's not working out the way I thought it was. But this beautiful picture of the lion and the lamb completely undermines that idea. Suggesting as it does that the power comes through weakness and vulnerability. That victory comes through defeat, glory from suffering, strength from weakness. And the whole book of Revelation undermines the idea that following Christ is going to be easy. Read the book of Revelation and come at the end of it and tell me that it's going to be easy to follow Jesus in the world. It's not. So we come to worship and God reorientates us. He tells us. He reminds us. It's a cost. It's going to be tough. There are going to be times when people won't like you to, as you seek to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Egoism sees ourselves at the center. It makes everything about us. And in the Christian life, it can be seen in the consumerism that so infects our faith. Shopping around for the best deal, as it were. Judging a service on what it does for me. The service isn't about you or me, it's about him. And we're supposed to be reorientated to him. You know, and in this vision, all our eyes are on Jesus. He's the lion and the lamb, but then you look and what is he doing? He's stood in the center with the elders and everything around him. Every eye is on him because it's about him. And one of the, the good news is, you know, in our society and in our culture, people are being told, create your own identity. You know, make your choices. Look inside yourself. You'll, you know, there's a beautiful person in there. Just got to make the right choices. Choose who you want to be. And the Bible says no. The Bible says no. Our identity comes from him. And as we look to him, then we're going to find who we are. Then we're going to find the beauty that he has made in us and put in us. It's here that, again, worship puts Christ at the center. The lamb that was slain. We need to reflect on the, his death as we will do on Good Friday, we need to reflect on him as the risen Lord, the lion of the tribe of Judah, as we will on Easter Day. And then, to me, the world just seems so naive. 
believing that politics can solve our problems and lead us to a better world. But this whole vision, indeed the whole book of Revelation, tells us that only God in Christ can put the world right. He is the one who opens the scroll. He is the one who unfolds the purposes of God in history. He is the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. And we so easily lose sight of this vision of the end when Christ returns and the new age of when heaven and earth are renewed. We forget that. And our worship should be able to reorientate us to eternity, (laughs) to the reality that this life is not all that there is, that it's not just about ticking off our bucket list, but it's about investing for all eternity. Worship reawakens us to the full glory of grace, not just the wonder of our salvation, but also the renewing of all things. We've got that vision as we go. It's going to be put right. So what does all of this mean for us as worshippers? Well, I think it means that we should be regular and intentional in our worship. We should recognise that what worship is for, you know, as we come, we focus on God. We come first for Him, But as we focus on him, so he deals with us, he reorientates us. He enables us to be ready and fit to live in this world and to face the challenges that we face in the world and in our lives and in our families. Should be regular and should be intentional. Come with that intention that I've come to be a worshipper. I'm not just coming and sort of like, well, I hope they managed to get me awake this morning. Well, actually, I've come with the intention of worshipping God to focus on him this morning, to meet with him, to receive from him. It needs to be God-centred, Trinitarian. I haven't dealt with chapter 4. Chapter 4 is all about God the Father. Chapter 5 is all about God the Son and and with the Holy Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, by the Holy Spirit, we worship them. You know, it is possible to come to church and have a spiritual experience, but it, for, for it not to be God-centered. <laughs> it is, you know. I love Bruce Springsteen. I really love Bruce Springsteen. And uh, we, I go, I've seen him six times up to now, seventh time coming up this year. Uh, and it's a spiritual experience, guys. It's a spiritual experience. I feel at the end of it, I'm glad to be alive. It's a spiritual experience. Three hours, everybody's got their hands in the air. It would be like the most charismatic church you've ever been to. It's a spiritual experience, but it's not God-centered. And we need to be just aware that we can have a spiritual experience, but it's not. we haven't met with the living God. We haven't had our vision of the Lord Jesus Christ enlarged. We've not been renewed and reorientated to the amazing grace of God. I think some of the times, some with our worship, we just need to be familiar. (laughs) You know, we need to feel comfortable as we come. And communion's part of that, isn't it? Communion's familiar. And it tells the story. It reorientates us to the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it's for. Jesus gave it so that we were to remember him and remember what he's done. There should be reverence before relevance. (laughs) It should be about him. You know, it's, it, it, it's about meeting with God and experiencing and meeting with the true and living God. And it should be adoration and action, if you like. Adoration focuses on the God who is holy and worthy and glorious and gracious and loving. We worship him. 
Well, actually, the action is the service that we bring. Because worship is service as well. It's that we go out into the world. And I'm not necessarily talking about, you know, filling our days with Christian activity. I just mean that we go out and we live kingdom values in our families, in our workplaces. We live for the Lord Jesus Christ. And it, might, it may be quite low-key a lot of the time, but that's our worship. And we're adding, if, you're, if we can, if it's possible, somehow we're adding worth and weight to the glory of God as we do that. So we come week by week, head spinning, as it were, with the agenda of our world. And as we worship, eyes focused on Christ, the lion and the lamb, so our true 2020 vision is restored. We revel in his grace and we recommit ourselves to faithful service in the world that he so loves and cares for. Amen. Just uh, pause for a moment and then I'll just pray briefly and then I'll hand back. Lord, we thank you for this glorious vision of you. We thank you that you are the lion and the lamb. You're the mighty one who has conquered death and sin and Satan and all the spiritual powers and authorities of this world. And you did it by being the lamb that was slain, slaughtered for us on that cross, shedding your blood that we might be reconciled to you, forgiven of our sin. And Lord, we pray that you will just reorientate us to your amazing grace, that as we go from this place this morning, we will go with our eyes firmly fixed on you and with our hearts determined to live well and faithfully for you in whatever circumstances we're going to face during the course of this week whether we're serving here in the, uh, in, the, in the work that's going on here at the pavilion, whether we're serving in our workplace, whether we're dealing with our family and loving and caring for them in perhaps in difficult circumstances. Lord, help us to have you front and centre of all that we do. So Lord, I just bless you. I bless you for this church. I bless you for all that you're doing here. And I pray and continue to pray, Lord God, that as people gather here week by week, they're going to be captivated by the beauty and glory of you, the living God. For I pray this in the name of our lovely Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.